Welcome to the Realized Gains Podcast, a guide to real estate investing. Join our co-hosts, Jordan Lee and Stephen Tran, as we interview a diverse group of real estate investors, both amateur and professional. Our goal is to help you understand that anyone can invest in real estate. Tune in to hear creative strategies and learn from both our mistakes and our successes. You can find us where you love to listen to podcasts, on YouTube, or at jordanleemortgage.com. And so what's your plan kind of moving forward? Um, I guess your kind of five-year plan. What, is, what are you going to keep doing in the real estate area beyond you know, building your current multifamily projects? Uh, well, okay. So for people who live in Washington, uh, the basically same Senate uh, House bill that was passed in Oregon uh, just cleared uh, the House, mm. uh, the Washington House. That means that uh, at least duplexes will be allowed in every single single family residential lot. So oh, wow. if you're in Vancouver, uh, keep an eye on that. Um, there's gajillion bills in, uh, in in Oregon and Washington that are going to make it easier for uh, uh, single family lots to either be split or or basically have having more housing options. Um, so what we I'm doing is getting more money <laughs> so we can basically do uh, more stuff regionally Welcome to episode 31 of the Realized Gains podcast. I'm Stephen Tran. I'm an Oregon realtor and I'm a multifamily investor and a single family investor. And I'm your co-host Jordan Lee, mortgage lender based in Portland, Oregon, licensed in about seven states and I invest in single family homes. Who are we interviewing today? Yeah. So today we interviewed our, our dear friend, Ken Kinoshita. He's ARIA uh, Portland's president. ARIA stands for the Asian Real Estate Association of America, and he's also an architect, and he tells us so many interesting details about how he uses his career to help out other investors. Yeah, he also has a great story about um, living and investing in real estate in New York um, and what he did to be able to remodel that and, and keep it as a viable rental in a, in a, in a you know, kind of tough, high-priced market. Yeah, no, I, I find it really interesting. Some people say you can't invest in places like San Francisco, LA, New York, but uh, you know, he shows us his one example, which is amazing and has done extremely well. And so I'm really excited to share it with you that one. Yeah, don't forget to like, follow, and share. Hey, guys. Welcome to the Realize Gains podcast. I'm Stephen Tran. And I'm your co-host, Jordan Lee. And today we have a super special guest, uh, Ken Kinoshita. Ken, why don't you mind, would you mind just like giving us a quick introduction, how you made it, like what your career arc is and, and what made you come out to Portland? Yeah. And, and who, you, who you are. Yeah, who you are. Okay. Um, it's first exposure. I want to say I made it. I'm uh, <laughs> making it, but okay, that's a terrible start, right? <laughs> uh, okay, so I'm an architect by training. So I went to five years of college, uh, and then I where and, and where did you go to school? At the Rhode Island School of Design. Okay. And uh, when you graduate as an architect major, then you have to put your time in uh, for three years uh, before you can 
uh, basic take the exams I did so I got an architecture license and uh, I worked for as an architect for about six years and and where was that it was actually two outfits the first one I was doing uh, exhibition design for design museums and the second outfit I was and you were staying in the Rhode Island area or no I was in New York City okay um, and then the my second stint uh, being an architect was doing a lot of uh, residential work, higher end ish, like around five six hundred dollars a square foot, and then uh, mostly in it's New York, so there's not that much uh, grand ops, mostly uh, larger apartments, um, and also some uh, like very, you know, typical New York hipster restaurants. Mm. Um, and when you're when you're a designer. Um, you are trained to envision, you know, a space and how it gets occupied and then uh, negotiate how the, uh, basically how the engineering and the building codes um, affect all that and you put all that together and then create space. But when it comes to actually uh, physically putting something together, you actually have very limited knowledge. Uh, that's actually the general contractor's realm. Mm -hmm. But... One day I was just drawing a waterproofing detail and uh, I realized I had no idea what I was drawing. So I went to my boss and I'm like, how the hell does this work? And am I supposed to, is anyways. That's okay. Okay. And he said, well, if you really want to uh, learn about this, you should go into construction. So one thing uh, led to the next. And um, a few months later, I was um, working as a project manager for... Um, uh, it's called Eurostruct, which is a mid-size uh, general contracting firm that most does, mostly does uh, super high-end residential. Uh, so we were building a lot of uh, townhomes and uh, a lot of the larger art galleries uh, and uh, what else, private schools. Um, so high-end commercial, institutional, mm. and residential. So you went from being on the design side to the construction side. Yeah. And does, was your job to kind of help interface with architects? and? Yeah. So one of the one advantages of uh, being an architect going to uh, uh, project management is that you understand how, uh, how the design is put together. So... Um, I guess in my case, then I was a Facebook company to the client uh, and also interfacing with the architect, with the engineers, mm -hmm. with the inspectors. Uh, and for better and worse, the way that uh, the company was at uh, basically came to be is literally there was two Irish guys who uh, were doing like small residential jobs like bathrooms and kitchens mm -hmm. and Apparently, their uh, boss uh, ran out of uh, money. So instead of paying them, he gave them basically all the tools and equipment that he, they needed. So they started on their own. And in the span of 20 years, they're from doing that to basically 15, 16,000 square foot feet per, uh, buildings. Crazy. And But they but it ran like a small company. Mm -hmm. So uh, what it meant is that I was doing kind of like two, three jobs at the same time. Uh, the uh, superintendent's job, which is being on the field and coordinating with all these subs, uh, and then the project engineer who's doing all the paperwork to make sure that the uh, project, uh, how do you call it, like all the specifications were being ordered per the architect's um, design. 
And the third one was project management, was basically looking at the uh, overall uh, scheduling, budget management, and then interfacing with the client. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the hours were brutal, but I, uh, I learned a lot. Mm. I'm curious, you know, uh, coming out of architecture school, I mean, obviously you're in New York, so you're in New York, so I'm assuming that you're not doing brand new construction from a lot. I'm sure you're working with existing spaces. Can you kind of tell us the difference between obviously building something brand new as an architect and, you know, renovating a, you know, an existing space? Yeah, uh, renovating buildings is really tricky, Mm. uh, especially in New York, because uh, the building stock is really old. and then the uh, since basically, you know, New York is vertical, which means that everybody's living above each other. So the plumbing code, the, basically, the building codes in general is super strict. I heard uh, that if you could do code in New York, then you can do code anywhere. Yeah, it's, exactly. It's the most onerous. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so also getting permits is really hard. Getting your building approved is really hard. Um, and uh, so one of the things as an architect, the first thing you have to do is basically. Um, do a really good survey of what's there, but it's old, so all the walls are crooked. And then it's also New York, and you're literally designing down to the quarter inch because every single square inch in your uh, design matters. Um, mm. So just making sure that everything fit was always challenging. And you know, it went both ways. As a contractor, then the architect would assume that like the a pipe was two inches, but in reality, that's the inside diameter, once you add the walls, it's two and a half. And the half inch actually would throw, throw your entire, uh, well, the architect's design off. So it was a lot of like hair splitting and uh, negotiating with very tight tolerances. Did I answer your question? Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. Because I, I, I don't have, you know, a good grasp of what, you know, architecting is. And, yeah. you know, so that that's very interesting. Um, can you kind of tell us like, you know, after, New York and after you were doing this construction thing, which you moved on to next? So uh, I had this lifelong dream of riding my bicycle uh, across the country and uh, had been trying to do that for about 10 years. And, you know, it's like I would get a new job or my wife get a new job or something else would happen or buy a house. Uh, but it was 2018 and we were um, 34. Five thir- turning thirty six then, mm. and we're like, well, if you don't do it now, we didn't have kids uh, a kid back then. Um, we felt that if we do it then, we would never happen. So, um, yeah, we grabbed our bikes and then we had all the equipment and we took off from our house in uh, Brooklyn and made it to Seattle. Um, and then what happened was that one of my uh, close friends from architecture school, with whom actually I worked with. Um, in one of the same firms, uh, had moved to from New York to Portland, and uh, she asked me to uh, visit. She was really insistent. I was like, "Yeah, sure, I'll stop by." Um, and when I showed up, um, she was showing me this uh, community art center that uh, uh, she was basically executive director for, and showed me this uh, eight hundred square foot room. Um, and um, it was just basically an old church building. And she said, yeah, we're going to have some um, uh, a new coffee shop that's going to be part of the 
center and it's gonna you know basically be a great addition to the community and i looked around it was september 4th i think and i told and i asked her it's like when are we supposed to open and she said october 13th um, <laughs> and i told her well you're never gonna make it um you haven't even started demo <clears throat> and she uh famously said well that's why you're here because i really need your help <laughs> so um back then i I actually assumed I was going to go back to uh, my old job and was actually supposed to work on the uh, basically a townhome renovation um, for the producer of the uh, Hamilton show. Because, uh, of course, it's New York. He was doing, mm -hmm. He's doing really well with that show. Uh, so, was, big names, of course. Yeah. <laughs> so, anyways, I was supposed to go back to that. Uh, oh, speaking of permits, the permits were delayed. Uh, so I was like, ah, yeah, I can take a month off to help you out. And in the meantime, like, you know, we made it. We opened time. Really? Uh, yeah, it was brutal. Um, Impressive. And uh, in the meantime, she was like, yeah, and I also got this, like, investment money to start doing, like, some multi-payment projects. Like, why don't we go at it together? And I guess there's part of me that definitely, I mean, when you're riding your bicycle for three months straight, then you have a lot of time to think. And there's one thing that sit well with me with uh, doing high-end residential is that um, usually like the my construction budgets for that would be like $15 million. And when you think about $15 million worth of building, you think a lot of concrete, a lot of materials, like a million dollars worth of cabinets and you name it. And after all that, like four people move in. <laughs> and I just like something about the waste of um, the amount of resources that would go into just house four people. Um, you know, was something that I wanted to change in my own career. And since uh, the focus on this multifamily projects uh, was to provide housing, at least for uh, first-time homeowners, and also uh, with a sustainable uh, lens to it, then uh, a bit of a whim, I said, yeah, let's try it out. Um, so that's what brought me to Portland. Can you tell us a little bit more about this uh, multifamily project that you guys got started? Or Yeah, so... Uh, well, what happened was that we had a couple projects uh, in the, um, and then the pandemic hit. And then mm. um, we had some building permits that just totally stalled for some, you know, our architectural uh, things that we're trying out. Um, and then there was something that we were in contract and we just walked away because we had no idea where things were going. Mm. Uh, so we kind of had had to take a pause and then recess what we wanted to do. So after all that, um, we basically got actually more money and we <laughs> ended up good problem. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then we, we ended up, uh, uh, starting to work on one of the projects we have, uh, it's 20 units, uh, five, four plexus. Uh, this one, is these ones are going to be Earth Advantage uh, certified, which mm -hmm. means that they're high-performing homes, uh, net zero ready. So that um, that means that the uh, with solar panels, uh, the overall energy consumption, uh, you know, through the year, uh, whatever the house uses for heating, cooling, will be completely offset by the uh, solar panels. Mm. Um, so you're going to have the solar panels installed or the homeowner can put those on if they want to? You know, zero? when we started, this was before the interest um, uh, hikes. We thought that it would be a for sale product. Uh, uh -huh. But now 
we have to remain a little flexible whether it's going to be for rent or not. And right. That'll change how we um, how we finally execute it. We might leave them as what's called solar ready, which is you just have all the infrastructure, and the last thing you do is just uh, put the solar panels on. So again, you have to kind of hedge depending on how much money uh, you want to sink in for a for sale product or a rental product. And what made you guys decide to do multiple fourplexes instead of like a you know twenty unit or something like that? Uh, so. I guess being in Portland, um, uh, Portland and also Oregon is, uh, are two interesting places, actually nationwide. Uh, the first one in Oregon is because uh, in 2019, uh, there was a house bill called uh, HB 2001. Um, and it was the first bill, if I understand correctly, in the country that um, allowed more uh, types of housing options in basically every single single family zoned uh, residential mm. lot. So that may, in what basically the bill says, it goes to every single uh, city and town in the state and tells them you have uh, two years to change your codes so that now you're allowing uh, at least uh, a duplex into each lot. And that could be either uh, splitting a home, building, um, or building an ADU in, in, the, in the house. And uh, in Portland, one, one step further, would say, well, we're going to allow up to four plexes. Mm. Um, so that was a zoning decision then. Yeah. You didn't have to rezone. Yeah, we didn't have to rezone. Um, and we said, well, if we can, um, and, there's a, and, and we knew that there are a lot of bills across the country that uh, were either voted on or being proposed. And that was just a matter of time for um, basically that to become uh, ubiquitous across the country, so, uh, especially California, Washington, Oregon, and, and starting in this region. So we said, if we are, if we can find out how to uh, build fourplexes, like either rent or sell, uh, and develop them, then uh, we'll be just like one step ahead of uh, everybody else as they're figuring that out. So you know, we might actually have a good pipeline for. Many years, and what? Are, so, where are you at with that project now? Uh, well, it turns out that <laughs> speaking of uh, permits, uh, getting po- uh, permits in Portland is maybe not as hard as New York, but say. Yeah. it's about like basically one notch down uh, from there. Yeah. Uh, so we're it's called uh, the entitlement phase, uh, which is uh, what we did was we found a one acre lot in uh, Cully. And then we filed to get it subdivided into five because that's what the zoning uh, uh, yielded into right five now. Single right. family lots. That right. Really the fourplexes on each one. Okay. Yeah. Got it. Um, and then city came back and said, oh, well, you have to build a road. So we're like, oh my God, this is crazy. We're going to lose 30% of the site. So we crunched numbers again. It was going to be fine. Um, so we ended up going forward with the, with the purchase, also knowing that had. Again, you have to always think exit strategies because you have put right. a lot of money in mm-hmm. uh, that if we were to, something were to change the market and we, we would make it to the finish line um, of the entitlement process, which is road building and, and lot subdivision, that at least we would basically break even with uh, uh, at that point. And then we can choose whether to go forward with the uh, fourplex building. So... Where we at right now is we actually finally got the road approval uh, drawings, and then the uh, uh, like the basically the first threshold where 
you know, any objections from neighbors, neighborhood associations were all cleared. So now basically we just have to uh, uh, get the wait for the city to do their own processing so that we can actually go forward with the uh, road construction, which is one of the requirements to get the uh, lots approved by the county. I see. Wow. Yeah. So it's very complicated. <laughs> and I mean, we know, we know you have your own business. Uh, were you working on any other projects during the time? Yeah. So, you know, while this thing was... And you uh, can pitch your business. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. You can pitch your business. Okay. So uh, <laughs> my business, uh, apart from these uh, partnerships that I have, um, is Vela Projects. And what I provide... Um, our owner's representative in development management services. So uh, the thing that I prov that I have an edge over a lot of other people is that I have as much experience as a contractor as an, as an architect. So uh, what that allows me to do is um, basically represent either an uh, individual or an institution's um, interest in basically trying to navigate the really complex process of getting in a substantial um, building, either, either capital improvement project or a grand uh, building project. Um, so what I do is from the get-go is help them understand what the feasibility studies would look like and then make sure that whatever they're going to go through really maximizes their value. And then, and then continue doing that by selecting you know the right team. Um, one of the things that happens with construction and one of the reasons why it's high risk on the development and this really it's um, very people dependent. So what I mean by that is if you have um, an architect and a contractor that don't work to well, uh, work well together, um, I guess typically what it does is makes your project a lot more expensive. Mm -hmm. um, worst case, it could actually sink your project in the construction end. Mm. Um, also, if you don't get the right architect to um, design this building, it might actually be completely either overwhelmed with work or completely und or uh, underqualified to do whatever you want to do. So that could, again, that could result in either a lot of costs uh, through delays or just poor design. Uh, in the worst case, it can sink your project again. Um, and, the, and it applies within contractor too. So... Um, I'm able to kind of understand where the architect's capacity is, both in terms of personnel and capacity being basically having worked in the firm, but also uh, the contractors and in kind of put together um, a team that will basically really minimize uh, that risk, but also maximize uh, the value for, for my clients. And, you know, um, in terms of like knowing the zoning, would you say that's more on your side as an architect or more on your side as a contractor? And do most architects need to figure out no zoning or is that their job? You know, uh, the zoning for architects is, um, I would say, uh, pretty relevant. That's where you start. Let's say, for example, uh, so the Jordan zoning, and I are working on a project design, right? in Salem yeah. and we're looking at land lot. And the first thing you do is look at the zoning because the zoning will tell you how big the building can be, what type of occupancy would be. Um, I'll tell you about uh, parking, uh, like how how it interfaces with the with the sidewalk. Um, 
Yeah, what sort of improvements right. you need to make. So uh, you look at that, but then, so I would say the first week or two, just basically do a deep dive on that. But really what governs um, the architect's work when it comes to the inside of the building will be the building code. Mm. And the difference between those is a building code is going to tell you how big the rooms are, how big the windows need to be, how thick your walls need to be for X type of thing, uh, what type of fire separations you need, how many stairs. So then basically, then you do a lot more referencing of that to basically design interior. Um, so in, in theory, an architect uses a lot, the building code a lot more than the uh, zoning. Mm. And okay. building code can be totally different for a, a fourplex versus a you know commercial. Yeah, so there's a threshold structure, right? There's a there's a there's the I guess in Oregon, there's the uh, uh, yeah the commercial building code and then the residential, and then Portland has as actually another layer of requirements too uh, on top of that, mm. uh, which actually speaks to a little bit of why is it that it's so expensive and um, to build. Uh, and also to design because then you kind of have to start from scratch as an architect. Let's say, for example, you're an architect in Portland and you get a project in Salem, then you have to kind of like pick up Salem's code and, and read and make sure that it complies and then send it over to their planning department. And a little bit by trial and error, then find out they have like some requirement, buried some in their code and then uh, get feedback on that and having to change your design. Um, so the issue with that then is that you have to rebuild that knowledge base as an architect every time. Yeah. And somebody has to pay for it, which usually is, um, you know, either your client who's trying to get a building or the homeowner who's trying to buy a house. So somebody's paying you to go read the zoning codes for <laughs> your, your hourly rate? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, that's part of the feasibility, right? You yeah. read through zoning and then you go to the jurisdiction and say, hey, uh, Based on my reading, this is what can be built. And then you're like, yeah, well, maybe, but then you didn't read this little obscure little line that's going to like do this, blah, blah, blah. And then you go back and then. Ultimately, though, you're helping people figure out, okay, what's the maximum you can build on this lot? Like, let's say, you know, somebody has a house with an extra large lot in their backyard. You'd be like, okay, you could split it up into this and here's some different options of what you can do. And here's, you know, yeah, you could help them figure out how to run the project too. Architects, I would say, are uh, good at looking at it on a case-by-case -case basis. Mm -hmm. But I would say having done now development, really the developers uh, are the ones who know that inside out because they're constantly, well, first of all, if you're a good developer, you're constantly shopping for it. So right, yeah. Uh, and two, then because of that, then you're constantly be like, okay, what about this lot? Okay, well now, you know, and you see enough of them and you're like, well, I know I can build uh, this big and this tall and this many units. Uh, so I start layering that in. So I would say, like, um, and developers are uh, tricode experts. Uh, and the other uh, tricode expert is a land use planner uh, who, uh, for example, in our case, we had to have the land subdivided. Uh, they know the zoning code inside out and also the city uh, processes to mm. get it approved. Uh, so you do have to rely on a consultant like that. So switching gears here, um, I know that you invested in property in New York. Talk to us a little bit about that um, and your kind of process and how you brought in your skills from your trade. Okay, so um, just to, uh, I guess real quick quantifiables. Uh, 
This is a uh, brick townhome built in 1880. It has 1880. 1880. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, did you buy this initially as an investment? No, uh, it became an investment later. But um, initially, we're just trying to buy uh, a house for ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, and in 2016, the market in New York was pretty similar to uh, what Portland became in the past two years. Multiple offers, mm. you know, uh, a lot of cash buyers, and then you're making offers left and right, and then just getting outbid all the time. Right. To um, throw, the, throw the yard at it. Yeah. So we found this home that had a lot of, uh, we th felt there was a lot of character, which meant that a lot of uh, original <clears throat> details. Uh, we were the third owners in 130 years. Wow. That's kind of crazy. Uh, and typical New York story, right? There was like some uh, German immigrant family who first bought it, and then some Italian immigrant family bought it from the German family, but 15 years later. But then it stayed within the family for uh, two generations until the second generation basically aged and wow. actually um, aged until they were no longer able to live in there. Hmm. Um, so we bought into 2016, um, and uh, after looking for a year and just get, continue getting out there. Um, and what's interesting about the New York market, having done so many uh, bidding, is that um, New York, in New York, the real estate is so expensive, but also your typically your property taxes are so low that. Oh, that the, is interesting. The existing condition of the building within the margin actually makes doesn't make that much of a difference in the price. So then we realized that we were actually better off buying as much building as we could because we understood that that's really what drives uh, the appreciation uh, in real estate, in, at least in the sector that we were looking at. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, especially in the New York market where I mean, land counts. is so valuable. Yeah. You're going vertical. like Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So, but I mean, land, the, I would say the land itself has some value, but most of the lots are not that much different in, in size. So you're really looking at like 90% of the lots are uh, for residential or ranging between like, I don't know, 16 by 100 to maybe 20, 25 by 100. What really matters is how many square feet of built, I guess, built square feet do you have in your house? Mm -hmm. Uh, again, uh, the entry cost to building, uh, adding square feet in New York is really expensive. Again, it takes a lot of time, and then it's really expensive to get an architect. The labor is more expensive. Is it that expensive to get an architect if you're an architect? <laughs> well, um, you're like you're charging yourself. <laughs> I, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, there's... There's a huge spectrum of uh, types of services an architect can give you. Mm. You could go from like the very cookie cutter who literally just like draws up literally one floor plan and he's like, here, here you go. Like, you know, I just, um, I just came up with this in 10 hours and, uh, I'll, you know, and you can just basically run with it. Um, and I would say for most ground up uh, residential buildings where, uh, your GC can fill in a lot of the blanks when it comes to the actual detailing. Actually, not an issue. Yeah. Um, and then there's the other end, which is basically getting, you know, a pretty well-acclaimed designed architect. And they're going to go through every single little nut and bolt and every single, like, 
finish and all that. And I that remember basically looking at blueprints, it'll say like what exactly type of screw. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, or yeah, and it has to be like a brass one, yeah. not Phillips, but it needs yeah. to be flat and yep. the flat screw needs to be horizontal. That's yeah. what I used to build and those are the architects I used to be able to yeah. deal with. They'll probably tack on another um, eight, ten percent to your uh, construction cost. Mm -hmm. And if you're building, let's say, ten million, you're looking at a million dollars. Yeah. Um, and then there's everything in between. Yeah. Right. Um, so part of uh, for me, like again, kind of transitioning out of architecture and doing Norris Rep is like understanding that there's that entire range. I mean, and go to the client, be like. Do you want a really nice building that's designed down to this screw, or you want something that basically just you want to go fast and hard? Then you find somebody who actually an architect who can solve the problem in the way that your client uh, is envisioning mm. their uh, building to be. And for your property, obviously, did you start renovating it right away to live in, and then because I know you transitioned it. To yeah. What kind yeah. Of okay. So I closed in? July first. Uh, it's a the overall square footage is twenty eight hundred. Okay. And then, and it was considered a single family townhouse. It was a single family. So New York has this thing again; it's really old. <clears throat> There's a lot of buildings that were up before any records were kept on what the yeah 1880 original occupancy of the project was or the or the house was. So in that case, like the zoning tells you that you can basically build up the duplex, and it was a single family. We're like, yeah, let's just add a unit there and mm. then get a renter in there because. Um, the yeah just offset the mortgage costs right so we closed july 1st um then we with the intention july. of making it a dupe you knew you were going to yeah. do that because you understood the code and you weren't yeah, afraid understood of that. the code you know again it was about buying as much uh score footage as we as we could so what happened too was that then everything went to the down payment the closing costs and then uh, and I said, well, I guess if I do it myself, then labor is basically free. Uh, so I started on July 4th. We celebrated there. July 5th, I started demoing. And then, <laughs> and then I finished in September. Basically, we put it on the market in September 1st. Oh, like a month later? Uh, two months. Two months. Two months. Uh, full, full gut. Two. Wow. Did you have a team or was it just... I was me. And by on the market, you mean you were renting the other unit? Yeah. yeah. I, so back then it was in construction. I started at 7, and then we would finish at 3.30. I'll take the subway. Uh, I'll take about 30 minutes, oh, 40 minutes to get home. Oh, because you were living there when, when you No, I was, I was working at the job site. No, I'm talking oh, about going to work. So yeah, I, day job. I went to work, day job, come back, and then usually I would have two friends from the job site be like, hey, like, do you want to work from like 4 to 8 or something? And they'll come with me, and they'll just basically go at it from four to eight and I'll keep it going to like 10, 11 and then um, I'll wake up at five, five thirty in the morning and then go back to work. And then I just did that for during the weekdays and then work Sundays too. But, you know, then I got a place uh, rented out in September 15th. And you, did you have to like do all the stuff like electrical, plumbing, that kind of stuff? Or was it? Uh, back then I didn't touch I, I did the, the waste uh, plumbing, uh, okay. and then the electric was redone, um, but uh, by somebody else. Okay. I didn't so want to talk it then. So you did have an yeah. electrician come out. Right. But for the most part, it was just, um, how, how would I describe this uh, properly? 
Okay, so this is also a bit of a uh, New York quirk. I think it now it applies to Portland based on where the market has gone in the last 10 years, is that it's so expensive to rent now that also the housing, and also so expensive to build that the housing stock here is getting older and the um, baseline quality of uh, unit that you can rent on like uh, an old house just keeps on decreasing. Right. And I realized that the best value you can get is something that looks clean and it's thoughtfully laid out and uh, and that you would probably do well. I didn't know how well, but we put it in the market. And then, I mean, I, I'm an architect, so I just spend a lot of time thinking, well, how do I create like a place that feels nice? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not expensive, not luxurious, just like it feels good. So we put it up feels and then clean, a week, feels yeah, like home. Yeah. a week later, like four... Five people came in. Like we put on a Thursday and Saturday, five people come in, and, the, and some people were begging us, and we we're like, "Oh my god! Like, what's happening?" Nice. Yeah. And we forgot that the median level of the housing stock that people are looking at is so shitty that once you get to point of just decent and nice, people really respond positively to that. And uh, I was actually really, um, in a way, actually almost influenced the way the reason why I'm here because I realized that uh, if I can accomplish that and just provide people i'm already improving people's lives mm. yeah no i mean like i said I, I remember going to even in san francisco looking for apartments and having people shout over my head that they're gonna pay a hundred dollars more yeah or two hundred dollars more really rent. yeah yeah i mean didn't get to bidding war because also we were you know i guess we could say like we're mom and pop landlords we're not price gouging you know, oh, uh, these were the same. I'm just saying, people are yelling over my head too. Yeah, <laughs> but we definitely had you know, uh, um, two people fly that weekend, and then next thing you know, it's like, did you feel like did you do rent comps or anything, or did you just? Yeah, we looked around, um, but back then, yeah. How did you advertise then? Back then, I this guess wasn't that it was a bit of a scrappy <laughs> move. Where like, internet? Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah, exactly. <laughs> we went to MySpace. <laughs> That's 2016. So oh, it was, it's 2016. Uh, so yeah. not that long. Ago. And uh, Craigslist, but still Craigslist. Yeah, yeah. Craigslist. Like yeah. I'm not getting any hits on Craigslist now. It's all Facebook yeah. Marketplace and Apartments.com. Oh, and Zillow. Zillow. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So, like, so that was the first renovation. Then the second one was downstairs, where the unit where we lived in, which. Uh, we had somebody move into when we moved out. So you didn't do the your side before you left? No. Um, and they rented out, and we had attendance there for three years. And they, again, it's a house from 1880. It just had a gajillion problems. That like you I, said character. You should be a realtor. It had a lot of character. <laughs> has a lot of character. It has a lot of <laughs> character. That's yeah. a realtor term. Some, some uh, you know... Uh, uh, moody characters. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, last summer I went back uh, because because I had a tenant turnover, mm-hmm. and uh, the issue was that my maintenance costs were so high because especially with the plumbing kept keeping backing up. That um, and again, we're I live in Portland now. The house in New York. It's not as if I can just hop in the plane and fix that. So um, hiring people to do it was also very expensive. So we decided to fly. I had the flexibility to uh, basically keep my uh, so my my current workload and do the same thing and just 
two month banging yeah, out. Month banking I'll out. say this, me and Ken are friends and he kept sending me pictures of all the, the work he was doing. I was like, Ken, I do not work as hard as you. Like, <laughs> I do renovate my own properties, but not this much. Yeah, because you redid everything again, right? All the uh, all in the this case, well, the, the issues that I had to deal with was uh, plumbing, uh, really old bathrooms coming falling apart, and also um, the there was a lot of noise going from the tenant all the way upstairs to the middle floor where, where the bedrooms were located. Mm. And uh, so I basically ripped all the ceilings down and basically reframed something that was like acoustically in, uh, isolated. Mm -hmm. oh, um, wow. So yeah, we redid a lot of uh, plumbing. And every time I touched something, we just like run new electric cables too. Yeah. I'm curious because, you know, obviously you turned basically a single family into, uh, you know, a duplex. Like, how does the doors work? Like, was there, like, how did you make uh, the two separate in units? this specific case, uh, since it's a townhome, then there's um, an entrance. Uh, well, you've, you've seen, like, the crawls. You've got the stoop, you got the steps, and yep. you got the door. Uh, you enter there, and there's a foyer. There's an entrance to the... Uh, lower unit from there and then you go up this uh you go upstairs and then and there's another uh, uh door to the apartment uh, the the upper apartment mm. uh, that said the, um the stoop has another door underneath and typically that's the one that uh when people live there uh use just because it's easier you're, you're off the sidewalk into the front stoop area and then just walk in there okay so they have two full separate entrances basically yeah to the outside because mm -hmm. the other person who has to go up the stairs can go up that main door and go all the way upstairs and in and before that was just probably just open right not not a doorway that was yeah that was open so again old houses townhomes the one of the things that really get wear and tear are the stairs right which Beautiful stairs that tend to wind, but also uh, after 130 years, like most of the steps are crooked by you know over two inches because the, <laughs> the, the, you always walk on the same side or whatever. Exactly. <laughs> so, you know, definitely just like reprop the whole thing, reframe it, and then um, and then yeah, build a uh, a closed wall so that um, each unit gets its own privacy. Mm. And did you basically, you said it was 2,800 square feet. So did you just basically split that in half or was there a smaller unit, a bigger unit? Uh, yeah, it was, uh, it's, it's a, we call it a one and a half bedroom unit upstairs. Um, What's a half bedroom? Basically, it's, uh, there's basically one room that's legally, you could call it a room. And there's something uh, next to it, which it's too small to call it legally bedroom. But if you want to squeeze somebody in there, you could. And I heart. guess yeah. what's interesting about that and but what it's got actually like a door works, and everything. Yeah. yeah. But what we didn't want to do since there's sound transmission issues was basically get a family in there because we just knew that that was just going to be um, an issue. So uh, in a way, like we designed it with having the ideal tenant in mind was just basically a single young professional who um, needs an office. Who needs an office and is also willing willing to uh, pay a little bit of a premium to have a bedroom and also uh, a nice place to to call a home office mm. or like a little studio recording yeah. studio mm -hmm. or something. Yeah. Um, and then the downstairs, uh, we have uh, a backyard, which um, you know 
it's just like there's not many people who have access to uh, a backyard in New York. So we we knew that our edge there was to and have something akin to families. So that's a uh, two bedroom, uh, two bath, um, with uh, you know basically with backyard access and um, in the full basement, uh, you know, and a washer and dryer in place, which just here it's just normal. But in New York, I remember telling a friend about it who was an architect. And he said, "What? You have a washer dryer in your house?" And I'm like, "Yeah." <laughs> Yeah, I didn't in San Francisco. So yeah, it's it's very rare in the city. It's <laughs> so, very tight. So there's one saying in New York that goes like, you know, you made it when you have your own washing dryer. <laughs> so I guess I made it there, but then yeah. I moved here. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I hope you have one here. Do you live in a house, right? No, we use the no. <laughs> <laughs> okay. No, we do. Okay, great. Oh, I do. Okay, so you know, obviously, not a lot of people think of New York as a very investment friendly place. It's a high cost right. of living Super high cost, location. Yeah. Uh, can you kind of run through the numbers of obviously you know what you bought it at, you know how much rent you're pulling in, how much it's appreciated? Because you know when I think of New York, when I think of San Francisco, LA, even Portland now, I think of them as appreciation markets. You make your money based off how much the property is going in value. You might not cash flow, okay. but I would love to hear uh, what the numbers are on that property. Uh, we bought it a million twenty-five in 2016, um, and then right now it'll probably go for 1.7, 1.75. Mm. Um, and interestingly enough, most of that appreci appreciation happened the first, well, it's been now, uh, seven years since we bought it. Most of that appreciation happened in the first four years. Right. Um, and right now we're pulling, so there's this 23, 50, 20s, and then downstairs 46. So it's like seven... $7,500. Okay. Wow. Rent. Yeah. Yeah. So the rents are strong. Yeah. It's, it's strong. And, um, what happened during the pandemic is that, um, I'm not sure if, um, you, you've read the news, but like the Manhattan, um, rental market really suffered Just from crap, that. Yeah. And it's because if you're <laughs> living in a 400 square foot studio in, in the tower sharing with a lot of people, and then you're transitioning to, uh, remote working, then the last place you want to be. Is yeah, if you have a choice, you're not going to be living in there. So the Brooklyn townhome market did really well through the uh, pandemic, and it's still actually running pretty strong. So mm. in that sense, um, and again, if you think like Portland has inventory issues, like think about New York, right? So uh, in that sense, the rental market um, has done and continues to do really well uh, in New York, especially for the type of product that we have. Yeah, no, I mean, like I said, it's then that is that's the only rental prop uh, property you have, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, from a cash flow perspective, it's it's working now. Yeah, it's working. Um, it's um, well, okay. So one of the again to answer your other questions, like in in this this will well this will answer two questions in one. Is New York a good invest a good place to invest? Uh, if you are looking to uh, park money. Um, I love, it's always attracted that kind of investor. Uh, and one of the reasons is because uh, uh, property taxes are fairly low there. Um, for Yeah, what are the property taxes on a, what did you say, so 1.8 million? Right now we're paying $4,000. Wow. 200 maybe? Yeah. Like, that's, you know. That's insane. That's on insane. A, it's a $1.75 million property. Yeah. Home here. yeah. 
And then, so you basically have a property with really low um, property yeah. taxes, and then in a market that is where inventory is always an issue. So in that sense, it's um, with the exception of the maybe a couple pandemic. I mean, is there uh, ever going to be a time where there's a buyer's market in New York? Well, it hasn't been since uh, <laughs> probably since nine eleven. Mm. Okay. And even then, it was just like a very specific yeah, area for like, of um, you know basically that uh, the 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 southern portion of Manhattan really suffered from that. But apart from that, probably for just a short time period. Yeah. Right? And the thing, I'm not sure how long it was for, but um, but it's basically being for the most part, again, minus some window in the pandemic years, a bear market there for that long. Um, and even like through the, the financial crash uh, of 2008, um, what that had an effect in New York was that it stopped appreciating, but it didn't really quite go down. But it didn't, yeah. yeah. Which is just in a big, down the- yeah. And, and that actually basically what happened was that that spurred another round of um, a lot of people investing in New York because they realized that, well, in 2008, with the economy collapsing, if New York basically didn't even go down, then it just made it clear that it was a really safe place to invest in. And it started attracting a lot of international investment. And what that did was just like exacerbate the uh, inventory and also uh, supply issues I'd already had. Well, you guys have hurricanes now, so we'll see. (laughs) <laughs> uh, yeah well sandy right but yeah. sa- i mean sandy really affect the city but did it affect real estate pricing yes in places where it flooded mm. but when when you let's say for example this is area called red hook in brooklyn was which was one of the worst affected areas um and when you look at real estate uh, at the trends there yes it did it went down but unfortunately people are uh one myopic and two uh you know, there's still basically fundamental inventory issues there. Mm-hmm. And went right back up. Yeah, second floor and up, you're good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it's a good place to invest. Uh, are the barriers to entry pretty high? Yes, but once you're in there, it's a good place to park money. I mean, I'll say this too. I mean, we don't have to just think of investing as looking for the best cash flow. I mean, you know, yep. equity growth is huge. I mean, that is some of the most impressive equity growth I've seen. That's like 650 grand. Yeah. And Jordan, how would we utilize like that equity? To- well, yeah, I mean, you can, of course, tap it with the home equity line of credit or um, cash out refinance. Of course, you could sell too. Um, but, you know, to your point, you're probably going to want to keep that forever <laughs> or, is, or until you want to invest in something bigger, right? Yeah, you know, I've been debating that a lot Um Lee one is because it's just uncomfortable to own something that's across the country. Yeah, now that you've done the repairs, yeah, are you having to deal with as much maintenance? No, no. Nope. Or so is it? Or is it feeling but, like you don't need to unload it anymore? Yeah, but you know, that's I think that was some of the things that I've understood from how I take things, and then how a lot of uh, landlords do in New York. Again, it's expensive, but my barrier of entry to fixing is much much lower because. I have no help, but also I put in a lot of labor. So I typically just like probably demo a little too much for, but again, but when I'm done. Right. Once you get started, you can't stop. I, I mean, <laughs> that's, I, that's the best part. Yeah. The most but, fun. But I just do go in and fix a lot of things that are like 
inside the sur be uh, behind the surface of the building uh, with the intent of it lasting a long time. So now that I basically did these renovations, I haven't heard from my tenants uh, actually zero since they moved in October. Are they paying? <laughs> Are you yeah. sure they didn't disappear? <laughs> no, actually, no, I did check in on them uh, because they, they just got hit in the store. And it's like, hey, how's it going? Are you okay? Like, I haven't heard anything from you. They're like, yeah, we're super happy. We love it here. It's like, how awesome is that too, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Well, especially since you were having so much issues before, it just, it's very gratifying to go in, fix it, and then... Yeah, and again, you know, I moved to Portland uh, basically to start doing my part in finding ways to building housing. So there's this, like, how do you call it, like, soft intellectual part of me that does find it really gratifying that um, to know that there's a family living there now and uh, and probably getting a much better place than they would otherwise. Yeah. Uh, you know, paying for fair market rent, but in the, uh, but all in all, probably improving the quality of life they could have in the other unit. Yeah, and you know, I what I admire about you is because you sent me so many photos and pictures of the work you're doing, and and you know, and we're different landlords. Like, I don't think I would ever go to those lengths because, well, one, I'm not as good as <laughs> you at that. <laughs> But two, like, I mean, you know, like for me, like I'll deal with maintenance. I'm here, like, you know, I can fix something. Right. I might not fix it 100% where it'll never happen again, but I'll get it, quote unquote, good enough because that's just my skill set and that's just where my budget is. But you go above and beyond. You fix deferred maintenance. You are going to make it last. You're fixing stairs. I mean, like you propped up stairs. I'd be like, oh, yeah. you know, what's that another two inches? Like, yeah, you just <laughs> take a small step and then a big step and you're okay. But, you know, you go above and beyond. And, you know, like like I said, that can add tons of value to you as an investor because your time is valuable. And now you're not dealing with mm. calls and mm -hmm. people complaining and people saying, I'm going to move out because this is broken and this is broken mm -hmm. and I hate this. Mm -hmm. So there is value in that, which I appreciate. Yeah, you know, and the value is also in your exit, again, with any investment, you have to keep an eye on the exit. So, when I had that train turnover, we we did con uh, contemplate putting it in the market mm. just to see uh, how much we could get and see if it would actually make sense. Um, and um, if in the way that we uh, just people were responding, yeah, people like when something's built and it's actually built just beyond just patching. Uh, people notice. And again, you don't have to go extravagant. It just needs to look um, basically thought through, right? Yeah. And I mean, you basically turned a home that somebody would just buy as their primary now, somebody can think of as an investment. Exactly. You know, and if it's done well and it's going to garner more rents than the other properties, yeah, I think you might get a little bidding war down the, down the line. Yeah. For this one, it was great. Like, you know, I... Um, so I started in August, what is it, August 10th, and then, uh, and I was at it for two months. I flew back for my <clears throat> son's birthday, and then went back at it for another week. We put in the market, uh, in October, and we're in, in like, well, I, New York acts, is a little bit the same as, uh, as, um, as Portland that wants to start reaching, like, the towards November, then it's uh, putting something in the market. It gets a little, you know, the market's lower. Mm -hmm. So we really wanted to get it in by September, but, you know, it didn't finish in time. So it became October. Uh, but we had somebody 
basically signed as a tenant within like eight days. Nice. They just walked in and said, we love this thing. Uh, it's like, can we just sign? And then uh, they moved in 10 days after putting in the market. It was, it was great because also when you have that much real estate, your holding costs are pretty high. Um, so that um, uh, like that low vacancy rate is for us, you know, at least for me, matters a lot. What's and so what's your plan kind of moving forward? Um, I guess your kind of five year plan. What is what are you going to keep doing in the real estate area beyond you know building your current multifamily projects? Uh, well, okay. So for people living in Washington, uh, the basically same Senate uh, House bill that was passed in Oregon uh, just cleared uh, the House, mm. uh, the Washington House. That means that uh, at least duplexes would be allowed in every single single family residential lot. So oh, wow. if you're in Vancouver, uh, keep an eye on that. Um, there's a gajillion bills in, uh, in, in Oregon and Washington that are going to make it easier for uh, uh, single family lots to either be split or, or basically have having more housing options. Um, so what we I'm doing is getting more money <laughs> so we can basically do uh, more stuff regionally and I would say if you're uh, already own a home in Vancouver uh, keep an eye on I forget the exact house bill number but basically it's going in, in it's likely it'll pass because it it, it was impressive the the house I think by a 92 to 7 vote I might be wrong oh. that might be the other one but but basically right now in the way that the house house and the state senate are um, are set uh, in Washington State. A lot of these house bills are going to get approved, mm -hmm. so you will be able to build, um, split your your lot down to, or the minimum size lot goes down to fifteen hundred. Wow! Which would actually allow a lot of lots to get uh, split. Yeah, so a lot. I if mean, you're looking, if you're already yeah. sitting on real estate and you're looking for uh, ways of maximizing value. Uh, I think that there's gonna, there's going to be a lot of potential there. Mm. So this applies to like adding an ADU, all, all the stuff, not just yeah. You can stuff. add an ADU and condoize it. Um, the other one in Portland that we're trying to do is uh, I think the learn the, the lesson from entitlement in Portland is that it just takes so much time that it's just not worth it for us from a um, I call it a learning perspective too. Uh, and thankfully, what we have mm. is like basically uh, value-driven uh, investors that are uh, willing to um, also hold on to something in the long term if, if the exit rate doesn't look that, that, that promising. Mm. Um, so I think with Portland's new, uh, basically the residential info project is the um, zoning reforms that Portland put in that allows more housing options, duplexes, tri triplexes, fourplexes, if you do affordable, you can actually build up to six plates. Mm. Uh, as long as half the units are on single family zones. On stuff. the single family zone stuff. Okay. Um, and that was if that was basically all six te six attached. Of them have to be it, yeah. The, the, and I actually I asked the city, can, can I build a fourplex by basically building two structures? And they're like, nope. They need to be connected. So a plex by definition is needs to be a connected or what could be a contiguous uh, right. structure. Okay, so it can't be six individual houses. In theory, 
you can get away by basically building two things that are connected by a breezeway because then it's one building. And uh, that was a loophole that I know uh, some people have used and gotten away with. Uh, so breezeway meaning you can just have like a roof there and... Um, yeah, let's just say you have two buildings that are a piece of wood, just touch it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, there's like a common, you know, common shed that defines some common entrance. Uh that's that's val that was that was valid. I'm not sure if uh, because that that zoning got uh, basically revised uh, into the 2.0 version, mm. and um, so I'm not sure if they put the kibosh in that. But what they did with a 2.0 is actually making uh, subdivisions in residential lots in Portland a lot easier. Mm. So if you basically what it allows you to do is build, let's say three townhomes and not go through this crazy uh, land use uh, process that we're going through. And there's there's basically a streamlined uh, uh, approval process so that you can uh, subdivide the lot and, uh, and basically allow for... And uh, this, this is active build. now? This is active. It got passed okay. last year. So just being creative. So like you said, you can do four units or six units if half of them are affordable. If you did this... You could basically, and thinking in, with an investment mindset, condoize each one and sell them off individually. Would that be legal? Yes. Wow. Mm. Uh, that's that's basically the purpose of this is to. Uh, well, to I was thinking them in rental, but then I was like, I could just break these off and sell a couple of them. Off, yeah, right? in yeah. A, in part of the new round of zoning reforms is actually is also making it easier for you to condoize uh, uh, an ADU. I like that. So could you do a sixplex plus ADUs? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> now you're getting greedy. <laughs> well, if, okay. So you can build uh, uh, basically one structure with two ADUs. Okay. Uh, you can build a duplex with one ADU. Okay. And then, or a triplex right. with zero ADUs, fourplex or sixplex. Okay. Well, five, you can do fiveplex, but by the point you're building five, I don't, you may I don't know why six, would you right? be building yeah. six, but they, they do need to be affordable. So probably the best case scenario is build six with a right. so if condos. You, if you want to maximize market rate, mm -hmm. fourplex. Yeah. If you want to insert an affordable uh, layer to it, um, then... Um, six picks, but I guess for us, then that made us realize that probably the best thing for us to do is uh, basically create a pipeline of just existing home, find ways with which we can either keep it, and if not, just uh, go down the route of building a fourplex as option A, and two is building it in the back and, and condo wise. Um, actually, duplex up front, uh, uh, ADU in the back, mm. and um. And I guess Portland's still a strong rental market, so yeah, you know, yeah. or in Portland the, Metro. Portland Metro is, is a uh, yeah. strong strong rental market. I mean, rents rents are not cheap in, anywhere in Portland. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So as a risk mitigator, then you know, if you're if you're able to do that, then if if your for sale project doesn't you know um, uh, doesn't pencil out at exit, then uh, you know, holding it as long as you're, you're not crazy leveraged, then probably cash flow um, post development. So, interesting. So now I think the pipeline is to basically. I think that's that's where, where the real opportunity is. Okay, awesome. Great. Um, and if you didn't know, uh, 
Ken is the president of ARIA oh, yeah. uh, Portland, uh, the Asian Real Estate Association of America for the Portland chapter. And Ken, if somebody was going to walk up to you tonight at tonight's uh, member mixer and ask you how to get started in real estate, what would you tell them? Uh, you mean real estate in your in general and like um, you know they maybe they wanted to invest in real estate or maybe they wanted to get into developing or um, you know we're curious. Um, real estate investing, not not doing it as a profession. Let's start with real estate investing, then we'll ask you about the profession part. Okay. I would say find the smallest thing you can uh, get your hands on and focus on quick cycles. Mm. Because at the end of each cycle, you're going to learn a lot. And if you're able to just build up, build on that and then go from there, great. Because I think for me personally, <clears throat> my learning, learning has been... I think I had this um, disparity between having a lot of technical skill, but maybe not a lot of like acumen when it came to how is it that I can uh, turn that into um, how to leverage it well on the investment end. So I thought that with, so because of that, then I would overthink things and think that I was being smart by thinking up to step five. But by the time that you get to step three, things change and you're actually... Step five is not applicable. Mm. I think just thinking step one and step two and just like, and really think, like, how do I get myself in in the first step? What is the smallest thing I'm comfortable to invest in mm -hmm. uh, based on what I know and also what I'm uncomfortable about? And then and just, and just take it from there. I think that's a much faster, easier way to, to learn. No, I love that. I mean, I think a lot of people have analysis paralysis they plan like you said five steps ahead and then right. you get to step got to like get got to get through step 1 first yeah, right yeah step 1 before you know how to plan for step 2 3 or 4 cuz step those steps can change obviously yeah and they and, do all the time and real estate is i mean in this that's yeah one and two uh basically you it can be as complicated as you can uh mm. want it to be but really uh it can also be as simple as you can uh, you can make it to be. So, I think for me, my learning curve has been uh, forget about over systematizing, forget about like thinking, you know, how, for example, how robust your financial model is. Um, you just need to get find the tools that serve you to solve the problem that's in front of you uh, most efficiently. And if that's just like literally a napkin sketch, and you just add three numbers and then subtract two. And if it looks like it works for you based on what you're going to go for, that's equally as valid as having somebody full-time working on a very complex financial model mm. with a portfolio, blah, 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 mm. and exit route. Um, and sometimes actually those things have enough uh, points of failure as your as your napping sketch. So uh, don't be, my, my advice would be uh, don't be intimidated by looking at other people who are using much more sophisticated mechanisms of making it there. Um, they're, they're useful if, if solves a, it solves the type of problem you're trying to solve. Oh, I love that because mine is basically, what is my mortgage? What is my rent? Yeah. There a gap and yeah. exactly. If, if there's a gap <laughs> in I, there. Can and I bridge that gap somehow? Yeah. Is there enough land that I can bridge it? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Awesome.
Um, and then what was the other question? Oh, just how would you get started in a career in real estate, uh, whether that be architecture or something else? Yeah, I, let's do it from the from the architect perspective. Okay, so I would say from the architect's perspective, um, architecture um, is a... Um, I would say it's 50% work of love, 50% uh, like a good long-term career. So what I mean by the work of love is uh, you typically have to either go through four years of college and two-year master's or a five-year uh, college degree. Mm -hmm. And then you have to do all this work and test, uh, basically take a very rigorous like set of seven to eight tests depending where you are I think and then the test requirements change uh, because they keep on revamping uh, the testing so you would think that then out of when you're done with that you'll be paid like a lawyer but in reality you're making like a third of a lawyer so <laughs> let's say if you're like a cost benefit analysis uh, driven person then uh, don't do architecture <laughs> <laughs> But what's nice about it is that building industry changes um, all the time, and um, at the end of the day, like there's very few things in this world that are as permanent as building. So if if you really enjoy the process of being involved in something where um, where you do it with with the intent of improving the built environment in in people's lives, it's it's a really amazing career. Yeah, uh, that's one. And the second one is. If you're done with your architecture degree and then you do your time and then you get sick of the uh, sick of it, there are a million career options. You can mm. go into construction. You can go mm. into development. Right. Um, uh, you can go into real estate. Consulting. You can go into all different types of consulting. So um, it gives it's like it gives like the baseline is it gives you a good skill set. Yeah, and you built a great business off of it. So yeah, awesome. Yeah. And then uh, the second question was... Oh, no, I, I think that, that was it. Um, what about if, if someone wanted to reach out to you for some advice? How, what's the best way? Are you on Instagram or where's the best way to contact you? I am um, I make it really hard for people to reach me because, <laughs> <laughs> because most of my... Uh, actually, most of my clients uh, want to remain private. Mm. Um, I'm trying to change that. But... Uh, that said, uh, with Aria, I guess one of the things, one of the reasons why I'm involved in a realtors, technically a realtors association, um, is because there's a community aspect of it that I uh, truly love. And because of that, then, yeah, of course, I'm accessible to that. And if anybody has any questions about anything that I've said, uh, I'm more than happy to um, be a resource. You can... Uh, I think the best thing to do is to call me uh, or text me. But before I share my phone number, maybe we should uh, leave that aside and then put it somewhere when it gets posted. How so about that, an email? <laughs> okay, email would be ken, K-E-N, at bellaprojects.com. Probably the podcast post will be able to include yeah. that so you don't have to like scramble for a piece of paper or... No, they can scramble. It's okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, then just in a rewind another 15 seconds. And then. <laughs> oh, man. Well, thank you so much. Super, yeah, super thank you for having me. We really this appreciate you coming on the show. Yeah, yeah thanks, guys. For a really great show. Thank you.
Thanks for tuning in to the Realize Gains podcast. If you have any questions for our co-hosts or guests, don't hesitate to reach out. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, or at jordanleemortgage.com.